Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it's been about a good four days since I was on the air with all of you last, but you know, as I've said it before and I could say it again, life doesn't always revolve around podcasting, and that's never a bad thing. As much as I enjoy doing it, I know that there are other things that um, at times do take precedent, and that just comes with uh, life in general. And, you know... The good news is that uh, during the time that I was um, on the air last with, last time with you all up until now, I had enough time to prepare for um, our upcoming uh, podcast uh, episode segment, which is never a bad thing, because when you have time and you use it wisely, it works to your advantage. Now, I'm not saying if you don't use time wisely that it doesn't mean that you're a bad person, but it just means that um, there are ways to improve upon it. You know, we, we think we have time, but we really don't. So it's up to us as, as individuals on how we choose to use our time wisely that will make all the difference, not just in the short term, but, uh, but for uh, long-term purposes as well. So uh, for those of you who live in the United States, I hope all of you had a good uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Um, and for those of you who live in other parts of the world, I'm sure that you all are doing fine as well. And thank you uh, for listening and um, supporting my uh, podcasts and just getting the word out in general. So, you know, I'm almost at 13,000 plays, and I'm not saying that to flaunt. Believe me, um, if anybody asks me what what does it take to do all this, well, I just tell them it takes preparation and it's a work of art. But all of you out there are interested in listening to these podcasts and that's what makes all the difference in the world. So thank you again and continue to keep spreading the word uh, because the more the word gets spread about the podcasts, uh, the better the results will be not just short term, but long term. And lastly, I'm not in it for the income. I'm in it for the outcome. So getting to uh, close to 13,000 plays worldwide, uh, that to me, is definitely a solid outcome since uh, June of last year. So when I was on the air again last, we um, we found out that Parliament wised up and realized that the Stamp Act was not a good idea, not just from 3,000 miles away, but even um, legislators in Parliament objected to the Stamp Act. In other words, there are legislators in Parliament who are sympathizing with the colonists 3,000 miles away across the ocean. However, for all the celebration that took place most notably in Boston, all that celebration was great. However, I do have to admit that the festivities did not last forever because we will find out in this podcast segment that England would soon again make her subjects more uncomfortable. What do you mean by more uncomfortable? Is it possible that Parliament is going to strike back with more surprises? Yes. Parliament's not ready to back down, folks. They're not going to back down without a fight. Parliament is desperate for money because the Treasury is drained from fighting a seven years' war against... Um, France and against the Indians, trying to keep the French and Indians off the frontier. 
But at the same time, uh, England has uh, turned her back on her own subjects. Remember that proclamation of 1763? What, is, what did it do? It prohibited all Western settlement past the Appalachian Mountains into what we know as the Ohio Territory, or what eventually will become one day the Northwest Territory. Now Britain is interested in other affairs, that is, protecting the Indians along the Ohio Frontier Territory. So it's not so much reneging the concerns of the colonists, but Parliament is also more concerned about finding ways to raise money through the colonists, but doing so, as we've already learned, by means of improper consent. So our first lead-off question for this uh, segment will be the following. How did Parliament proceed after officially repealing the Stamp Act? On the same day that the Stamp Act got repealed, being March 18, 1766, Parliament instituted a new law known as the Declaratory Act. You know, when I think of the word declare, I mean, that is a word that's often associated with asserting power, not just over an individual, but over a larger body of people. So this declar declaratory act basically confirms that Parliament has complete power and control in making all laws where subjects below, aka the 13 colonies, would have to adhere to without any say in voicing opposition. So is this fair to say that this declaratory act, it's not about one thing alone, folks. This declaratory act is just the, it's the initial cornerstone behind further acts of legislation that will come that will basically say, hey, we're in charge here, not you all. You all are our subjects. You will do as you're told. And if you don't like if you don't like the way things are, then, you know, you're up a creek. And, and if more acts of rebellion continue, then we will um, resort to other measures. Don't want to get too far ahead, but maybe I could say this. It's fair to say that one measure could mean bringing troops from England to restore order, most notably in a city like Boston, where this cradle of... Um, what we would call cradle of early signs of independence has evolved. Wouldn't you all say that Boston is the leading uh, town in America at this time that has um, sparked uh, what we call early signs of revolution? Yes, other cities have joined, but I don't know if Charleston, South Carolina has reached that same level as Boston. However, all the colonies are, have been unified in, in opposition to the Stamp Act. They were um, unified in terms of, uh, of how they felt betrayed when Parliament passed that 1763 Proclamation Treaty outlawing uh, westward uh, settlement uh, west of the Appalachians. But it, Boston still is right by itself. I mean, other cities are, are, agree with certain things on what Boston is standing for, but not everyone supports the, the idea behind mass violence in terms of you know, it's one thing to dislike a piece of legislation like the Stamp Act, but early on, John Hancock did not like the idea of the angry mob, the unruly crowd, going and um, destroying um, Peter Oliver's home, or even vandalizing Thomas Hutchinson's home. So there again, it's one thing to dislike something, but then, 
here we go. How do you go about controlling your emotions long term? All right, let's move on to this figure here. Who is Charles Townshend? You all have probably heard something like the Townshend Duties or the Townshend Acts. I know I could be giving something away right at this moment, but I have to find a way to introduce you all to Charles. To, to, if I could speak, that would be good, <laughs> to Mr. Charles Townshend. He is a British politician whom held an assortment of various titles. Okay, so it's one thing to be a British politician like Mr. Charles Townshend, but he's one of those individuals who holds a variety of, of titles while serving in Parliament. Most notably, from 1749 to 1759, he had served on the Board of Trade, where he showed support behind giving Parliament broader powers over taxing the colonists. Okay, so this guy has already asserted that Parliament needs broad powers. More so now in the post-French and Indian War era, when Britain is trying to restore peace, not, not only to her subjects, but peace to the Indians along the frontier. So in August of 1766, five months after Parliament repealed the Stamp Act and instituted the Declaratory Act, Charles Townshend accepts the role of Chancellor of the Exchequer. It's a very unique title. Does anybody want to take a guess at what Chancellor of the Exchequer was all about? An Exchequer is spelled E-X-C-H-E-Q-U-E-R. Exchequer, if, if you want to pronounce it that way. Well, Charles Townshend is the Senior Minister to the Crown, and he is the head of the Treasury Department. So basically, Chancellor of the Exchequer is probably the equivalent of being Secretary of the Treasury in the United States, under, um, under the, uh, the President of the United States, that is. Was Parliament divided over proposing new taxes geared towards uh, revenue benefiting the Crown? Do you all think Parliament was divided? For the longest time, I, I didn't think Parliament would have been divided. But sometimes we should, be, we should um, be surprised that there have been times in history when people haven't always been 100% unified over the um, most 101 um, matters. So, believe it or not, folks, Parliament was divided over proposing new taxes geared towards Revenue benefiting the crown, or I should say the government. Well, how so? Those whom opposed the new tax proposals feared a greater fire getting fueled by the colonists 3,000 miles away, whom would resort to new extremism levels. What do you think? Why do you think those whom opposed the new tax proposals did fear uh, the fire getting fueled even more so? They feared it because if any other new legislation get, got passed, the colonists would see it right away as another direct violation of improper consent, another direct violation of improper taxation methods without giving the colonists themselves a say. Even the colonists went as far as saying that they would be willing to support 
sending elected officials 3,000 miles away to England to speak on their behalf. Well, Parliament said, you know, that's a nice try, but no matter how many individuals you sent over to uh, speak on your all's behalf, it still would never be enough to overturn the uh, decisions. Is it fair to say, though, that the majority of all members in Parliament are for taxing the colonists as a means of generating more revenue for a treasury that's already um, depleted of money, considering that Parliament is facing a $145 million deficit, and that's in pounds, whereas Colonial America was facing about a million dollar deficit based upon pounds. There's a huge difference between $145 million in debt versus a million dollars in debt, and we're talking pounds here. We're not talking American dollars at this time. So, yes, it's one thing to oppose a new tax proposal, but you also have to wonder, okay, if we pass more legislation against the, our subjects, it's just going to lead to even more problems. And what do you think could be the biggest problem that we've already seen it happen? That is, um, with customs collectors, do you think customs collectors are going to be safe? No. I mean, they're not probably safe as it is, but if you pass more laws that, are, that pretty much um, lead to taxation without representation or improper uh, taxation uh, practices without direct consent, not only will the, um, the unruly crowds gather in sizes, or how should I say it, not only will the unruly crowds grow in sizes, they will resort to further violence, that is, v destroying a custom collector's home, a loyalist's home, tarring and feathering, so these issues won't go away no matter how many new pieces of legislation Parliament wants to pass. So we've, got, we've already talked about those whom oppose the new tax proposals. Those in favor of the new taxes sought, re, sought revenge primarily against Massachusetts, considering that the colony alone had abused the king's powers by granting amnesty to all Stamp Act rioters. Anybody know what amnesty means? Mass pardon, or what I call mass pardoning. So let's say a hundred um, rioters were responsible for causing damage not only to Peter Oliver's home, Thomas Hutchinson's home, but had incited mass violence along the waterfronts of Boston surrounding the wharves where the ships are coming in and out. Now, all of a sudden, the dissenters are in control to where Peter Oliver and Thomas Hutchinson, they've had to take refuge at Castle William, uh, which, is off, which is an island off the uh, main drag of Boston. And now, all of a sudden, you've got, hands in the, you've got power in the hands of not just so much the disgruntled, but power in the hands of unruly people who are creating their own laws, creating their own vision of government, and that one of those visions is granting amnesty, mass pardons. It's one thing to pardon an individual for his, um, his or her uh, wrongdoing or past wrongdoing, but all of a sudden to grant mass pardons to, 100, say, 100 people at one time, that's a lot. 
and in the eyes of the crown and parliament, that is an abuse. That is an abuse of, uh, of power. And maybe parliament could, sit, could say right, right here and there that that was a, um, an improper uh, method of consent. In other words, did parliament say that it was okay for um, the people of Massachusetts to issue amnesty to all Stamp Act rioters? No. So it's fair to say that it's a double-edged sword here where improper consent is taking place on both ends, but of course in the eyes of the colonists, the, the vast majority of the improper consent is taking place 3,000 miles away across the ocean in a legislative uh, chamber that, um, that is so desperate on collecting revenue that they really don't know where to even end their... Um, they don't know where how to put a halt to all this. Well, come June 29, 1767, Parliament passed a fourth piece of legislation where no means of proper consent had been, had been administered to her subjects. Okay, folks, remember what were the first three pieces of legislation? The first one dated back to 1733 with the uh, Molasses Act. 1764, what was called the Sugar Act or the, um, the, Ameri or the uh, Revenue Act. The third one was the Stamp Act of 1765. So now we have a fourth piece of legislation where no means of proper consent had been administered to the Crown subjects. Legislation enacted on June 29th of 1767 was referred to as the Townshend Acts or the Townshend Duties. What made these, what made this set of acts different? Well, I'll provide you with the most basic of uh, reasons. The acts um, did impose um, import duties on five types of glass. I thought there was only one type of glass, but there were five types of glass that got uh, imposed uh, with duties on. How about red and white lead? I didn't know that even lead itself, there were different colors of lead. How about paints? I'm not talking Sherwin-Williams paint, folks, but paints got hit. And an assortment of papers, legal documents like... You know, papers that would pertain to, like, marriage licenses or certificates, um, documents that would pertain to business matters. But then there was the most infamous of all uh, commodities that got hit with um, duties on the uh, Townshend Acts. How about the tea? I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, where, when would the tea come back? In other words, we talked about it way, way early on. And I'm sure many of you all are wondering, when are we going to learn more about these uh, ships that made their way into uh, Boston's Harbor in 1773? Well, six years before 1773, tea is now uh, re-emerging. I mean, we already know that tea has become a popular, uh, it's become a popular beverage. Maybe not by everyone, but there is a sector of American society that is uh, benefiting from tea and we're going to learn more about that here uh, momentarily. However, I will admit that right now I'm drinking a glass of tea. I enjoy tea, but I can admit right now that if I was alive during this time, I don't know how many people would probably like me for drinking tea. 
you know, it's one thing to say, oh, I, I would drink this or that, but if you got a lot of people who were against something that was uh, taxed without their consent, they'd think twice before wanting to even consume the beverage. And what am I referring to, folks? The tea. So, yes, tea was a popular beverage among the wealthy, that is, wealthy ladies in America. Most wealthy ladies in America saw tea as a symbol of British wealth and power. All taxed items that were made in England with the exception of the tea. So in other words, every um, duty, like the five types of glass, to the red and white lead, to the paints, and an assortment of paper, all of that was... Um, all of that was made in England. All those items were made in England with the exception of the tea. Where is the Crown, or I should say Parliament, getting their tea from? From the British East India Company. And you know, they're trying to sell that tea in America. And it'd be interesting to find out just how much tea is getting sold. I think we found learned in the uh, last podcast that... At, at one point, um, the British East India Company went from 870,000 to like 840,000. About 30,000 pounds of tea were sold, which seems like a big number. But when you consider how much is left over that needs to be sold, that tells you more. So they were, they were able to, what do you call it, sell about, make about a 3.5% um, increase in, uh, in sales. That may not seem grand, but maybe it's better than nothing. But um, what I do know is that the uh, Townshend duties, these duties were meant to curtail the smugglers. That is, you know, people smuggling non-imported British goods into the uh, colonies. The Townshend duties were meant to curtail, or I should say deter, smugglers' abilities to bring illegal goods from elsewhere. In other words, the Townshend duties are meant to curtail anything coming in from the French West Indies to the America, to, into America. If anything's coming, going to be coming in from the West Indies, it should be coming from the British West Indies. They tried that earlier, and it really backfired on them, uh, as we learned from a previous podcast. What else was established under the Townshend Acts besides new taxes? How about a vice admiralty court? Or let alone, I should say, vice admiralty courts. Does anybody know what admiralty courts are? Do they, have to, do they pertain to the army or do they pertain to what we would think of as the navy and being on the water, a.k.a. maritime? They prefer... Admiralty courts refer to, um, like, the Navy, the water, maritime, maritime trades. So when you think of admiralty, think of it as short for admirals. Admirals are linked to the Navy. So the Townshend Acts, besides the new taxes, the Townshend Acts um, created uh, vice admiralty courts which tried and convicted smugglers of crimes without the presence of jurymen. I thought we were all entitled to, to a, um, a fair and speedy trial as well as the right to a trial by jury. 
Not under uh, the Townshend Acts. Parliament wants to get matters resolved quickly, and that means trying people um, without a presence of a juryman. And not only was uh, Parliament wanting to try and convict smugglers of crimes without the presence of a juryman, how about wanting to raise money in the colonies where the money itself went to pay the salaries of governors and judges whom would remain loyal to England and by remaining loyal to England, they would uphold existing precedents allowing the right to tax the colonists. So, you know, it's bad enough that Parliament and the Crown are facing a $145 million shortage, or in pounds, I'm going to say again. But it's one thing to raise money by means of taxes, but if you're going to keep royal governors in the colonies and judges, you've got to pay them too. So these pieces of legislation are not meant just to tax the colonies for war purposes, but how about by taxing the colonies, you're, the money you're hoping to get back in return will go towards paying officials whom are still on colonial um, America's grounds, royal governors and judges. It's one thing to have a judge, but if a judge isn't going to remain loyal to England, do you want him on the bench? No. You're going to see that judge as a traitor, and you're going to probably see to it that he gets removed immediately, more than likely getting sent back to England for acts of treason. So yes, you need to have governors and judges to maintain order, but you also need them to remain loyal to the crown, because you've got those officials need to find a way to crack down on further acts of rebellion. September. Okay, let me ask you all this. So we found out in um, June 29th, 1767 that Parliament enacted the Townshend duties. When do you think people in America finally learned about the Townshend Acts? Think about it. The end of June, and now we're in September. So that's not even close to two months, but how about a month and a half? Remember, folks, we don't have telephones. We don't have breaking news alert stations saying that Parliament just passed another set of legislation without, con without providing proper means of consent, proper means of uh, advice and consent to the colonists. No, um, the news of the Townshend Acts officially makes its way into America come September of 1767. Massachusetts, interesting enough, by 1767 had eliminated most of its French and Indian war debts, and all leftover existing debts could be erased as a result of selling lands confined around areas deemed wilderness. Massachusetts is already a step ahead, folks. They've, they've found ways to eliminate their French and Indian war debts without even having to <laughs> pay debts in return to Parliament. But at the same time, Parliament's going to do whatever it takes to not only punish Massachusetts, but the rest of the other uh, colonies as well. Now, where is John Hancock at this time? Is he still in Massachusetts? Yes. We learned early on from a previous podcast that he advocated um, instituting uh, boycotts on English imports. When a boycott gets instituted, what does that mean? It means that people are against something, and by being against something, it means you no longer support it. 
So, and boycotting can be can be for a variety of, of reasons, and history has shown that. So, when we think of imports, folks, what do we think of? Goods coming in or out? Coming in. Exports going out. So, John Hancock, like, he, I mean, he had success with uh, boycotting English imports during the Stamp Act. Will he advocate once again instituting a boycott on English imports for the Townshend duties? Yes, he will. He is he favors uh, targeting goods that, in his eyes, are non-essential luxury items. I found this kind of interesting in terms of what was considered to be a non-essential luxury item. It went from gloves, shoes, to gold and silver thread, just to name a few, but I thought to myself, you know, don't don't all of us need gloves to keep our hands warm? Uh, don't we all need shoes to wear? Yes, we do. However, there is another reason for this. There is another reason for why this um, boycott is being put into play. Come late October of 1767, John Hancock drafts a resolution encouraging colonists everywhere, not just in Massachusetts, but as far south as the Carolinas and Georgia, to find ways to go about reducing dependency on an assortment of British goods and instead produce them domestically at home. You know, to me, that's a great idea, but we also have to keep in mind this too. And I've learned this at, Williams, at Williamsburg many of times. For starters, Colonial Williamsburg was really a population of about 1,000 to 1,500. The only time it really doubled or tripled was when the House of Burgesses was in session. And it's, yes, Colonial Williamsburg at one time may have had five or six shoe shops. However, in England, most let's say London, for example, is it fair to say that you'll find more than 10 shoe shops in London? Yes. How so? Well, for one, London has a larger population than Williamsburg, Virginia. But two, London can get access to leather from other parts of the world. And by getting access to those other uh, kinds of leather, they can ship them to the colonies for, for a, what do you call a more um, equitable price? Because in the colonies, they may not have access to those same kind of leather that England got from countries overseas whom she does business with. So let's think of it this way. It's one thing to be able to find a way to reduce dependency from England, but if you don't have the proper means of acquiring goods that are similar, then I think it's fair to say one might be up a creek. I don't mean that in a harsh way, but we all but we've got to keep in mind that not everyone has the same kind of access to uh goods that are of uh higher quality and also goods that say someone from the gentry or from the wealthiest 1 to 2% of society are going to be able to attain versus someone who is from the furthest end of of the society spectrum who would be uh less likely to attain so it all comes down to you know, yes, your connections and what you have access to. So, yes, this is a great uh, resolution on the part of John Hancock and wanting to um, go about encouraging the colonists to reduce dependency 
on an assortment of, of British goods, but where you live in terms of region will either will say a lot about whether or not you can uh, acquire those goods and be able to become more self-sufficient than, say, you previously were. I do know that uh, Harlow Giles Unger's book, American Tempest, How the Boston Tea Party Sparked a Revolution, did talk about how, at one point, after the Townshend duties were enacted, how nearly um, a large score of um, weavers came about making um, fabric and cloth and other textile goods left and right that did um, assert a form of um, independence in terms of not relying upon those goods coming from England. But uh, keep in mind that the New England economy is a mercantile economy, and by having access to um, spinning wheels and um, other fabrics that they can um, acquire on a, a regional basis, that would uh, make them more self-sufficient. What did Pen what did Pennsylvania what did the Pennsylvania Chronicle publish on November fifth of seventeen sixty seven? The first of twelve essays by John Dickinson. Now, didn't we learn something about John Dickinson um, beforehand from a previous podcast? Yes, we did. Especially um, his presence at the Stamp Act uh, Congress and how he focused on two things that was fair and proper methods of taxation to uh, the right to a trial by uh, one's um, jury peers, or just the right to a trial by jury. Well, John Dickinson, uh, he's not a farmer, but the um, his essays were best known as Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania, which turned out in 20 out of 26 newspapers amongst the 13 colonies. So I did the math, and that's about 77% of all papers at the time were able to um, acquire uh, Dickinson's work, and that also included um, numerous uh, pamphlets. Dickinson's essays helped unite the colonies in their opposition against the Townshend Acts. Now remember, John Dickinson is against this improper legislation, improper legislative measures that have been um, a direct violation of um, consent, that is, proper consent. But Dickinson's not ready to uh, sever ties completely. He, along with a handful of other uh, men, um, come 1775, 1776, not to get too far ahead of the game, but... They will be the ones that uh, will institute the Olive Branch Petition. So whenever you hear the Olive Branch Petition, you think of John Dickinson. What honorary post did John Hancock uh, get reelected to on uh, March 14th of 1768? He got reelected to what's called being a selectman. And what does a selectman do, folks? Well, the selectman is a post that allows one to have authority over the town's finances to public works projects, local defenses. I'd say this is a very uh, high-level post. It might be like the equivalent to being like on the board of supervisors. Here's an important question. Well, we already know that John Hancock is now the wealthiest merchant, not only in Boston, but he carries a lot of clout throughout colonial America. 
But did John Hancock own ships, or vessels, rather, I should say, used for transporting goods to and from England? Yes, he owned two vessels, being the Lydia and the Liberty. What happened on April 18, 1768? Well, the Lydia was tied up at Hancock Wharf with items like tea and paper, to name a few unique items. Did you hear that, folks? Tea and paper. Those were items that were uh, taxed, taxable items from the Townshend duties. Come April 19th, two customs agents boarded this vessel, only to be confronted by Hancock himself, along with the ship's captain, including a mob, an unruly crowd. It turns out that one of the agents did make his way into the ship, but Hancock, by the time he got out, Hancock caught him, along with the others, most notably the uh, unruly crowd. Han John Hancock um, caught this customs agent, whom had snuck below deck, without a valid, without any valid written order. In other words, he didn't have any valid writs of assistance. What happened to this agent? Did he get arrested, hauled away, go on trial? Well, he didn't get arrested right away, but he did, he did get, he did face a punishment. The agent got hung upside down. He got hung upside down, um, on the uh, vessel, there was a place to hang him upside down, folks. They didn't have to go to the gallows um, into town for this, but they hung him upside down as his punishment for not having probable cause to conduct a lawful search, or what we call a lawful search and seizure. Matter of fact, Hancock went as far as, as asking this man a question. Do you want to search the vessel? The customs agent was terrified. He said, no, sir, I, I, I don't want to search it. In other words, the customs agent learned his lesson. He learned it the hard way, but it's like that old saying goes, sometimes some people have to learn their lessons the hard way, even if, even if they think what, that what they're doing is justified when everybody else knows it's not. So John Hancock's assault on a British customs agent, folks, was the first physical attack on British authority throughout the colonies. You know, it was one thing to, you know, tar and feather a loyalist, but a British customs agent now has been physically attacked. You know, up until now, we were vandalizing their homes and uh, destroying their homes as a means of opposition just to their presence alone, but now John Hancock has taken it to the next level. And he's hailed by many as a hero for doing this. Well, I think we already know the answer to this one, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Which gender in America favored drinking tea? Women. For ladies, tea was a social beverage that came across as being more hospitable when in the presence of one's home. I'm not saying that women didn't drink alcohol, but let's remember this, folks. If a woman decided to go to a tavern on her own and start drinking, that was a red flag. It was just very unladylike for a woman to just go into a tavern on her own and start drinking. The only time a woman would probably be seen at a tavern is if she, is if she had been given permission by her husband to accompany her. 
However, um, in Colonial Williamsburg, uh, I do know that, women, that there were women who did run taverns. And that was primarily because their husbands had passed away and they needed some form of employment, especially if they had children to look after. So uh, the church, which was pretty much its own uh, governmental institution, oversaw it that the, um, that the widows were allowed to uh, run um, the taverns. Whereas water and milk weren't safe to consume, tea was the opposite, as it offered an array of health benefits like soothing an upset stomach. Well, tea can still do that today, folks. I mean, tea has a variety of great essentials. It is interesting to note that there were nine um, loyalist merchants in Boston that um, remained loyal to Britain's East India Company. It's interesting to know that, folks, nine loyalist merchants, that doesn't seem like a big number, but when you consider that these nine loyalist merchants were not just only loyal to the crown, but they were the ones that were um, helping the British East India Company overcome its large um, surpluses of uh, tea that needed to be sold. But what I found interesting is that the tea chests weren't labeled as having tea. They, instead, they were labeled with having uh, textiles on the front for concealment purposes. So from 1768 to 1770, and I thought I had uh, mentioned this earlier from a previous podcast, so forgive me if I mention the numbers here again, but, um, but we didn't before, but I'm going to tell you all now. From 1768 to 1770, the East India Company its tea exports were reduced from 870,000 to 840,000 pounds. That's only a 30,000 pound reduction and a roughly a 3.5% decline. But who contributed to the decline, folks? The nine loyalist merchants and their families in Boston. Can't imagine what those nine loyalist merchants and their families would have had to deal with, knowing that they were in a select group or what we call an elite minority. But wondering, you know, would their safety ever be in jeopardy? They knew how to conceal it well, but sometimes, no matter how well we conceal something, it doesn't always mean that our safety is always going to be uh, secured long term. Did the Townshend duties prove to be successful? No, um, they didn't. The duties alone produced less than 5,000 pounds in extra revenues for the British government. Less than 5,000 pounds. That's not a whole lot, folks. I'm not sure how that would even come out to in American dollars, but what I do know is that the British merchants lost nearly 7,250,000 pounds in annual revenues. They lost roughly two years' worth of trade. Is it fair to say that British merchants were more than likely against the Townshend duties? Yes. There again, folks, not everyone in England is 100% unified. Yes, the majority of, in Parliament support these measures, but yet the small minority who are against it, they have um, an equal say over what they feel is improper and unjustifiable. As the 1760s were coming to an end, 
Tea consumption in America continued to rise largely due to the fact that Americans replaced East India Company tea with cheaper tea. What, is, what was that cheaper tea, folks? Does anybody remember? Dutch tea. Americans had consumed 900,000 tons of duty-free Dutch tea. The Townshend Acts produced further defiance, a.k.a. hostilities towards the mother country, England, amongst the colonists. You know, I thought the Stamp Act produced hostilities, and it did. The Townshend Acts went further. What takes place in England come January 1770? Boy, 1770 will be an interesting year, folks. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to um, learn a little bit more about 1770 because it's, the start, it's not so much that it's the start of a new decade, but it's going to be one of those years that's going to be a true watershed moment. I don't know if it's a true watershed moment for all of colonial America, but it will be for a particular colony and town. I'm sure some of you all may know the answer now, but maybe it's best not to go into further detail. But let's just keep in mind about why, about how and why 1770 will be important. So, But for starters, what takes place in England come January 1770? Frederick Lord North becomes the new chancellor of the exchequer. Okay, we got a new treasury secretary here, folks. This man goes about overseeing Parliament's repeal of the Townshend Acts, including the majority of all duties from lead, paper, paint, glass. I'm sure many of you all are wondering, did you leave something out? Well, March of 1770... Parliament complies with, Nor with Lord North's requests, but one duty being an exported good still remains as a, as a source of controversy, being none other than the tea, folks. That is the only thing that is still left on from the Townshend Acts. Lord North, along with Parliament, they've decided, you know, the um, remember that Molasses Act, how it was a six-gallon um, penny per pound? Uh, Parliament has tried to uh, come up with scenarios in the years after that Molasses Act where instead of six penny per pound duty, how about a three penny per pound duty? To me, that seems fair. However, the, yes, a decrease seems fair, but it's, it's not perhaps 100% fair. Why? Because for Parliament, the three penny per pound duty on tea is a symbol of dominance over her subjects. Parliament may have prevented what they thought could lead to an all-out revolution amongst the 13 colonies by repealing the vast majority of the Townshend duties. But is it fair to say that the remaining duty on tea alone is what will keep the flames burning in the eyes of the colonists? Oh, I believe it is. And how so? Because they are sick and tired of being taxed upon without their full direct consent. Do you think it would have been easy or do you th I mean do you think it would have been common sense for parliament to have dropped the tea? Yes, but what about those nine um loyalist merchant families in Massachusetts? Do you think they could have run the risk of going uh bankrupt? 
I don't know if they would have gone completely bankrupt, but they they would have risked losing a lot more protection and run the risk of uh, more than likely getting tarred and feathered. There are a lot of unknowns right here. But I think it's fair to say that even if Parliament had repealed the T on the Townshend Acts or the Townshend duties, they would have come up with something else right away. Maybe they should have come up with something else instead. But when you think about it, folks, you still have, what, 840,000 pounds of tea that needs to be sold? You can't sell it all in one night. I mean, we don't have grocery stores, people. We can't just put the tea on the trucks and go take it to, like, Food Lion or Wegmans. We don't have any of that kind of stuff. You could send it to warehouses, but who's to say that it will... Um, even leave the warehouse, or, or not the warehouse, but just getting off the ship alone. There are a lot of unknowns, but what we do know is that Parliament and, um, and her subjects are, are not on good terms. They haven't been on good terms for some time, but the duty on the tea alone is what's going to keep the flames burning for the colonists, in large part because, here again, they are sick and tired of being taxed upon without their full direct consent. You know, it's one thing to um, tell someone that you're going to uh, possibly institute a piece of legislation. But if you go behind their back and don't tell them all the reasons why it's going to be done or what's going to be included, and then all of a sudden the legislation does get passed, that is a violation of of what I call appropriate um, consent. You know, you don't have to maybe tell, how do I say it? You want to, if it's one thing to, to um, ask for consent, but you need to give as much information to the other party as there is possible so that they know that what they're getting themselves into is a valid, um, it's a, a valid arrangement, a valid agreement. Remember what Samuel Adams said early on? If no consent is given, then how can any kind of law-binding contract agreement be relevant or even let alone um, valid? If it's not valid, then there can be no existing meaningful relationship. Well, we've covered a lot of ground as always. I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time. And when I'm on the air again next, we, we're going to be getting closer to... Um, late 1773, but one thing we will be discussing in the next podcast episode is uh, more about 1770, because what happens in 1770 is imperative to what will eventually take place in 1773 with the tea. But then again, the tea isn't going away anytime soon, folks. The tea has been around for quite some time. And remember, because the tea is still there, the flames are still, the flames haven't been extinguished. The colonists still have something that they can um, protest about. They still have something to voice their opposition on. And it's just not so much the tea alone. It's all of the other injustices that were put upon them without their direct consent. Thank you again for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air again soon. And for all of you, I hope you have a good start to your um, upcoming week. And for some of you, wherever you may live in the world, it's probably already Monday as it is. But nonetheless, take care and stay safe.